Hello, and welcome back to Facts Matter, a production of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan, where we explore important policy issues facing our state. I'm Maureen Saxton. There's been a lot of conversation lately about the number of budget earmarks tucked into the Michigan budget at the 11th hour. Here to discuss that is today's guest host, Beth LeBlanc, reporter with the Detroit News. And with her is Bob Schneider, Senior Research Analyst at the Research Council. Welcome, Beth and Bob. The lawmakers in June passed an $82 billion budget that included record amounts of what's called earmarks or what we typically call in the news business pork or pet projects. But it's been hard to get a handle about how much in pet projects this budget actually funded and when those items were added in and how much of it was going where. Recently, Citizens Research Council came out with a study or an analysis of that pork project spending that casts a lot of light on when those new items were added and what the total amount looks to be. Bob, can you talk to us a little bit about what you guys saw in there and what conclusions you came to at the end of the day? Yeah, we tried to quantify first the amount of earmarks. And when we talk about earmarks, what we mean is an appropriation, an allocation in the budget you know, to a specific entity, to a specific city to a specific private entity, as opposed to, you know, traditionally we appropriate money for a program. And if the intent is it goes out to nonprofit entities, then we do that by a grant application. But in this case, the earmarks, but what we mean is dollars that are going to a specific entity in the budget, which is not the norm of all the earmarks that we identified. And just for the record, we looked in the big state budget bill and we looked at general fund financed earmarks. So we put a little bit of a box around what we were looking at. General fund financed earmarks, which means the state's discretionary revenue is our general fund. And we looked specifically at what was the amount of the earmarks overall in the budget and how many of those were brand new for the very last final vote on the budget that came before the, the House and the Senate. We called them 11th hour earmarks, which means they weren't in the governor's proposal in February. They weren't in the House's version of the proposal as it passed the House. They weren't in the Senate version of the budget proposal that passed the Senate. They literally came out of left field at the last minute and appeared in that very final budget. And our numbers showed about, there's, there was over $1.3 billion in, in earmarks overall in that final budget. And almost two thirds of them were 11th hour earmarks, as we described them there, that they were brand new things that hadn't been considered elsewhere in previous deliberations on the budget in the House and the Senate by the governor's proposal. From our vantage point, that's a public policy issue. Is this the best use of, of public funds? But when they come in that late in the process, that means no one's seen them. No one's really had a chance to vet them, except maybe the few lawmakers, the few administration officials that might have been involved in formulating the final list of the earmarks. They weren't in the House budget. They weren't in the Senate budget. No one had a chance to ask questions. Who's going to get it? Why are they getting it? And so forth. We had a lot of earmarks, as you indicated, Beth, but a big proportion of those earmarks were brand new to the very end of the process. And from a budgeting standpoint, are we allocating the state's resources in the best and most responsible way 
it's hard when you have that much coming in at the last minute. It suggests maybe there wasn't that kind of oversight. To set the scene for folks who might be observing this process, for reporters at least, we're, we're watching it in the months ahead. We're watching appropriation subcommittees, so different committees that are handling different portions of the budget go through a very deliberative process in the, the months ahead of a, a final budget vote where they're preparing different budgets for the different departments and, and emphasizing where they think there should be money versus where they think there shouldn't be and what programs should be funded within those departments and everything. And then you have these kind of two sets of department budgets between the two chambers. The day of the budget vote, they put those into what's called omnibus budget bills. So they kind of put them all into two buckets, one for general omnibus, one for K-12. And then they they vote on them in a conference committee, kind of put, getting rid of the differences between the House yeah. and the Senate. Right. And that's after a lot of negotiations and backroom where they're talking about what makes it in it. What's difficult is that during the subcommittee process, some of these grants kind of pop their heads up and you see them in some of these smaller department budgets, but the vast majority don't. So they get added in at the last minute after being negotiated behind closed doors. Within hours, the full chambers have to vote on this budget. And then reporters and research research groups like yourself have weeks and months to kind of pour through it and try and understand where these things are going and how much there are. What's difficult about it is if you look at the actual budget language, these grants can't say specifically where they're going, right? Because if it's a private institution, that's not supposed to happen. So what they do is they describe the grant by describing the size of the community that it would benefit. So they talk about a city with 50,000 to 70,000 people in a county with between 100,000 and 120,000 people for the purposes of environmental remediation or to benefit baseball teams in the area for a cricket field (laughs) or what have you. For observers and for the public who should be an integral part of the budget because they're the taxpayers, it's like putting together a puzzle beforehand, putting together a puzzle in the three hours between when it's unveiled and they vote, and then trying to understand that puzzle in the weeks and months afterward. And and I think what you said is really valid, that there's a real question, not only about earmarks in general and what the public good is or how they're prioritized, but then also when they're added at the last minute, is it enough time for the public and for their representatives to understand them enough to vote on them? Yeah. And Beth, there are legislative rules in place that if they were fully observed and should prevent these kind of really last minute earmarks being added that late in the process and kind of going around the oversight that you just noted. But we have sort of adopted a process over the last five to 10 years with these omnibus bills that sort of gets around those rules. At the end of the process, we have a a House passed and a Senate passed bill that instead of having a full budget, it's sort of a blank budget. This year, we had the, the bill that became the final budget. When it passed the House, it was a $100 appropriation, sort of a blank, generic $100 appropriation. When it passed the Senate, it was a $0 blank kind of pretend appropriation bill. And that's what creates 
all of these matters of difference. Nothing is a point of agreement and the bill is open to any and everything at that point. That opens the door to a lot of this last minute, 11th hour earmarking. And when we talked about it in our blog, we said there's a pathway to, to, to help reform this process. And it's one, revise the budget process, pass real budgets, even if it takes time, pass a real bu- house budget that has all the appropriations in it, pass a real Senate budget that contains all the intended appropriations. And then again, observe the, the rules that 10 or 15 or in 20 years ago were observed. Now the conference committee's job isn't to rewrite the budget. It's to negotiate on the differences between the House and the Senate. We don't do that anymore. That's what opens the door to all these last-minute earmarks and that really torpedoes that rule that's supposed to, to, to prohibit them. The other thing I think you would agree, Beth, that would help us all is the new language in the budget that is intended to be kind of transparency language, it does, and this is a good thing in and of itself, it does call for, finally, we would have some type of report that would identify, all right, instead of these population between 11 and 12,000 and all of this, we finally have a report that says, okay, it's going to this city or this nonprofit, here's how much they get, here's how they're going to spend it, and here's the legislative or the administration is the sponsor for this earmark. Here's who wanted it. Unfortunately, now we're not going to probably see that report for a year or more after the budget was voted on. Our recent blog said that someone knows that information and it should be made public now, not later. We should put that out up front before the vote so that members of the legislature know, so that researchers like us know, so that the media, Beth and your colleagues know. And we can follow up on that detail and look at were there conflicts of interest, who who politically benefited, who did get money. And and that's important transparency as well. And I think those process changes would make an imperfect process a little better, at least. Yeah. From what we've seen of how this grant process plays out, and, and we've had a really, I guess, front row view of it over the past year, because we've been covering a lot of the grants from the last budget, where there was about a billion dollars in earmarks as well. And uh, the way the budget, the, the grant process plays out, you know, a year from now, when those are actually disclosed or when there's a report on them, the, a lot of the money will already be out the door. And, and it's not like they could reverse it if, if we knew it sooner. Maybe there would have been a there would be opportunities. But at that point, once people are paid a year out, uh, there there's no opportunity to kind of question where that money is going or which group it is. But one thing I was going to ask you too, were there any items that stood out to you in this earmark cycle or the one last year where you thought like, okay, that's a good example of an 11th hour earmark that maybe would have been avoided if there was earlier notice or, or should have been avoided with earlier notice. There, there were a lot of them that stood out. And I'll be honest, I probably am going to have trouble remembering whether they were the 11th hour earmarks or not. The Detroit News did good coverage last year of some earmarks, I thought, and we cited them in our blog that appeared to benefit political donors in some cases, campaign donors. One uh, went to an individual who was highly connected to the Republican partisan apparatus. I I do remember an earmark 
And again, I don't remember if this had been in a previous version of the bill or not, or if it was truly what we, we defined as 11th hour, but it, to a private entity for a, a reverse vending technology. And I think the public purpose behind it was supposed to make bottle returns more efficient. And I don't know what entity this is, but it appeared to be directed to a private business of some kind. Was that a truly a public purpose or is that a private purpose? And without any information, it's really difficult to tell. But if information is available in advance, may help folks um, flag them and at least ask the questions that, that need to be asked to determine, is this a legitimate public purpose or does this look a little bit more like a private purpose? And is that the appropriate use of public funds then at that point? There were definitely a lot last year that we saw and, and kind of uh, zeroed in on about grants that kind of raised some red flags in, in that sense. One was to a nonprofit that didn't file incorporation papers with the state of Michigan until almost two weeks after the budget was passed. So they gave $20 million to a nonprofit that didn't exist as far as Michigan law was concerned at that point. So there were there were a lot that kind of raised some eyebrows, I would say. Sure. One other question I had for you is between the two caucuses or between the two political parties is that people criticize the process when they can't criticize the policy. Basically saying that either party will attack on process when they're all out of other sorts of attacks mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. In this case, why do you think the process is important? And what, how would you respond to something like that, like a criticism like that? Well, if the criticism of the process is kind of empty and, and it's because we don't have grounds to attack the policy, there, there can be legitimacy in that argument. In this case, I, I don't think it, there is legitimacy. I think the, the issue with this process is that it... Again, we say it in the blog, good budgeting means finding the best use of scarce state revenue resources and using them most effectively by tackling our most important public priorities because we can't, we can't meet all our public priorities. So we prioritize and, and use revenue the best way possible, whether they're earmarks or anything else that's coming into the budget so late that it can't be evaluated and it can't be measured up as to exactly what is this and how does it weigh versus other public needs, whether they be in other areas of the state or other programmatic areas. That's what this process, I think, promotes, especially when we see all these last minute earmarks coming in. There's no way to evaluate whether we're using the state dollars in the best possible way, frankly, because we don't always have a good handle on exactly what we are appropriating state dollars to. And so that's why that's why we wrote the blog and tried to raise the issue and propose the fixes, because in the end, it's going to promote what we should be focused on, which is using the state dollars that we have in the best way possible. And that will always be important. That In the end, that's the overall goal of writing the state budget is getting that decision making right. So we're going to wrap up this version of the Facts Matter podcast. Beth LeBlanc from the Detroit News, thank you so much for, for being with us today and co-hosting. Great conversation. We hope uh, we can continue these conversations about things that go on in Lansing that maybe not everyone is aware of. And 
it was good talking with you today. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Budget earmarking always draws attention and raises eyebrows, and this year was indeed no exception. Thanks to Beth LeBlanc, reporter covering Lansing and beyond for the Detroit News, and Bob Schneider, senior research analyst at the Citizens Research Council. The Citizens Research Council of Michigan has been providing lawmakers, academics, and the media, and all Michiganders, really, with factual, unbiased, independent information on significant issues concerning state and local government, organization, and finance for 107 years. Our research is available to you. Go online at crcmich.org and on Twitter at crcmich. Download our research, check out our numerous blogs, and listen to our podcasts. And while you're there, please consider supporting our research with a donation. We rely on charitable donations for our work. This has been a Facts Matter podcast, a presentation of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan.